0: And all God's people said, amen. amen. Woo, come on, 11 o'clock. You heard the rain and you got out of bed and came on through. Gold star for everyone. Woo, because I don't know about you, but that first drip and pitter patter, I looked at my weighted blankets, and I said, the Lord knows my heart. I am so glad to see you this morning, 11 o'clock. I am Angela. If we haven't met, I would love to get to know you after service. I've been asked to share a few announcements in the life of SBCC, couple of things that have been going on, don't know if you heard. Um, The first is two weeks from today, on Sunday, August the 7th. Everybody says Sunday, August 7th. Sunday, August 7th. I will not show up, not show up. At, Studebaker at Studebaker 112. Excellent. That is because we are having a family gathering over at Four Winds Field. Instead of the 11 o'clock not having a nine, we will have one gathering at Four Winds Winfiel- Field. There will be box lunches. How many of you went to the game a couple of weeks ago? My goal on August 7th is to even out my farmer's tan. Uh-huh, yes. So we hope you will be there. It is free, but we do need you to register so that we have an accurate count for the box lunches. And they say that there's no such thing as a free lunch. There is a free lunch Sunday, August the 7th at 11 o'clock at Four Winds Field. To register, you should go to our website, southbendcitychurch.com. There you can also get in on supporting us financially. I don't know if you know this, but in my day job, I teach, among other things, about faith and giving and the theologian, Henry Nowen, talks about the discipline of gratitude. It is the explicit effort to acknowledge that all that I am and have is given to me as a gift of love, a gift to be celebrated and with joy. Some of us celebrate with joy through our singing. Some of us celebrate through our serving. Some of us celebrate through our giving. I tell my students all the time, I can make more time, I can make more money. I cannot make more time. So if I give you my time, I'll give you my money. We don't pass baskets because we're in the midst of COVID-28 or whatever we are right now. And so if you'd like to get in on supporting the church financially, there are boxes in the back on your way out, as well as going to our website. One more thing that I'm not sure if you all were aware of, um, this week was a major milestone in the life of this community. And I can do this without crying, probably. We closed on the Tribune building, and we have the keys. As someone who recently closed on her very first home, I know how amazing the words, we have the keys means. When I got the text from Matt this week, I was grateful that I was pulling into my driveway so I could do the ugly cry without being a danger to myself, Ruthers. (laughs) And the tears were tears of joy, but especially tears of gratitude. If you've been around this community for longer than a minute, you know the importance of place, but it doesn't matter if we were at the brick, at the double tree, at uh, downtown in that other building that's name has just escaped me, the Century Center, or here. Place matters, place matters in the Bible, and place matters everywhere we go. This is a moment of gratitude and celebration. For those of you who are new or for those who just need a reminder, we root who we are as a community of believers and doubters and everyone in between are on three mantras that are on our back wall. Sushi, not fish stew. Next to it is everyone an icon. uh, Fields, not factories. And today I'm gonna talk a little bit about Practices, not performances. Your life does not have to be a performance. We don't believe in the sage on the stage. This is why we sit in the round so that we can all practice our faith together. Church is not a performance, but it's a practice. Failure is not fatal. And we're here to practice the rhythms of grace and peace that Jesus teaches. Speaking of practices, not performances, you may remember a few weeks ago when I was on this, sta- on this stage and I shared about what I thought was the greatest travel nightmare known to a person, 18 hours to get from Philly to South Bend and I didn't go west of the Mississippi. Yeah, so turns out our guest speaker, heard that story and said, Angela, hold my coffee. (laughs) Sean Palmer tried his best to get here from Houston. He tried every imaginable flight combination known to humankind and the best he could do would get him in here probably on Tuesday. But we give God thanks and praise for technology and that we are a community rooted in practices, not performances. So Sean will be with us, just not the way that any of us anticipated when this week started. I'm just grateful that we have this because someone asked me before service, oh, does this mean that you're teaching? Oh, the devil is a bald-headed, bold-faced liar. Woo! So to give a little background of Shond, who is a newer friend of our community, but still a friend to SBCC, he is the teaching pastor at Ecclesia Houston, a speaker and an executive coach. He is the author of Unarmed Empire, a contributing writer to The Voice Bible, and is vice chair of Missio Alliance Board. He's a newish friend to our community, but we are glad we are so beyond thrilled and elated to invite him back in whatever form the Lord saw fit to share in our series surprises in the text.
1: Hey South Bend City. Uh, my name is Sean Palmer and for the last several months I have been looking forward to being with you all this weekend. I was all ready to go, all packed up, just finished taking every, care of everything. When I got a text message today, earlier today, that my flight to Chicago had been canceled. Well, I went into kind of the emergency mode. I called my assistant, uh, Gloria, who also happens to be my mother, and we tried to figure out something. There's no way that I could get uh, to Chicago and then over to South Bend to be with you. And I really regret it. I, I've enjoyed my time there before. You're such a wonderful community. I'm honored. Uh, That Jason would invite me to be a part of your life during this season while he's out on sabbatical and to talk about uh, these texts that we find surprising that, that people that you've heard of have found surprises in the text. So I've done the next best thing, at least the best thing that we could think of is to shoot this video. From my home, and I am truly. This is my home office. Um, my family is running around doing all sorts of things. Parties in the middle of the summer. My my dogs over here, so she may bark at any point. Like this is this is as real as it gets. This is Sean in his own space, um, unfiltered. And so I am so grateful that Matt and the team there have been incredibly gracious. To me and allow me to do this, to shoot this video uh, so I can still be a part of this weekend with you all and talk about a text that I've actually just found super surprising. And before I get into that, I just want to pray a prayer blessing over all of you and over where God is leading you individually and your families as a community of faith. Just allow me to do that for you. God, I just thank you for this church community. And all that's ahead of them, all that you've brought them through, Lord, collectively and as individuals. And pray, Lord, that even though this isn't our first desire to be on video and this distant from one another, that we are reminded that we are one in spirit and that you are our one true God that binds all of us and all of creation together. And so, Lord, would you just um, give us this time your presence, um, that you would pour through me the gift of teaching, so that we can all partner with you to bring about your preferred future for all of creation. And we ask it in your name, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, one of the things that's been absolutely crazy about our lives over the last year is that our oldest daughter, who is 18, is making a significant transition. I have two daughters. The oldest is 18 and the youngest is 15. And in just a few weeks, that oldest daughter is leaving. She's flying the nest. She is off to college. She is going to study sociology at the University of Texas. And we are really excited for her. We are honored that we were her parents. We were never supposed to be able to have children. And God allowing us that beautiful, transformative process has been wonderful for us. We love our family and being a family together. And so just over the last several months, we have been trying to just download all of the things that we need to or that we want to communicate to her before she goes off. We want to nail all those things. What did we forget to tell her? So we've just been telling her all of these different stories about what it was like when we were kids and the things that she might go through, knowing that her world is really different than ours. And I am really amazed by how different the world is from the time that I was 18 and headed off to college and her at this stage headed off to college. And I was raised very differently. I was born in Mississippi. I was raised in the South in Mississippi and Georgia. And quite frankly, like I was raised in a very traditional home and my parents did some things that people now kind of frown upon. Like for instance, like me and my older brother, like we were spanked. I mean, that's, that's an understatement. We weren't just spanked; Like we were whooped and black folks in Mississippi, you didn't get a spanking. You got a whooping. And if it was really bad, you had to go out in the yard or go out in the woods and pick your own switch and bring it back. And there's a lot of that's wrong with that. There's a lot of prop that's problematic with that. We didn't do it with our girls. We didn't raise our girls that way. But it gave me a sense of what it meant, like, to be punished. Especially when I was being punished for something when I didn't know what I did wrong. I have a real clear memory of a whooping that I got when I was in fourth grade. So from the time that I left school and walked home because that was the thing that we did. Kids walked everywhere, or we rode our bikes everywhere. That's the one thing that Stranger Things gets 100% correct. From the time I left school to the time I got home, something had happened. And apparently, my fourth grade teacher had called my mother and told her that I had been disrespectful. So I don't know what was going on. My mom usually worked. This was just a season in our lives when she wasn't working. And she was one of those parents that is like spank first and ask questions later. So as soon as I got home, she lit me up. And I had no idea, no earthly idea what I had done wrong. As a matter of fact, to this day, I don't know what I did wrong. It, it bothered me so long that I finally got around to asking my mom one time, like, what did I do wrong? And you know what? She couldn't remember either. No one could remember what I did wrong. But this memory, this vision is stuck in my head forever forever. And so there's this soft spot in my heart for when people suffer consequences and I can't tell what they did wrong when I don't know what it is that they did wrong. Because if you're going to have consequences, you should know why. What's fascinating is there's this story that's in the book of Genesis that's always bothered me because I could never tell what the people did wrong. Now, if you've been around the Bible for a long time, if you've studied it a lot, maybe you grew up in the church like I did, you know this story as a story of the Tower of Babel. And you know exactly what happened at Babel. But if you don't know it, let me read it to you so you can hear what happens in the story of Babel. Genesis 11, starting in verse 1, says, There was a time when everyone on earth spoke the very same language. As many of these people began moving from the eastern regions into the western part of Mesopotamia, They settled down on the plain in the land of Shinar. Since stone was not really readily available, they discovered how to make bricks to use for mortar and to build their structures. The people say to each other, come on, let's make bricks of mud and bake them in the fire. Then we can build all we want. Let's go build ourselves a city with a huge tower that reaches into heaven that way we will make a name for ourselves if we don't we'll run the risk of being scattered all over the earth the eternal one came down and took a look at the city and the tower the children of adam were building he was not pleased god says will you look at that the people are all together on this with one language they are able to start this kind of project. This is only the beginning of what they will do. Soon they will think they can accomplish anything and everything on their own. Let's go down and break this up. If we confuse their language, they won't be able to understand each other's words. This is how the eternal scattered people from Shinar all across the surface of the earth Since they were unable to communicate, they stopped working on the city and went their separate ways. So this is why the city was called Babel. Because it was there that the eternal confused the language of all the people and scattered them across the surface of the earth. I read that story. I asked the same question that I asked of myself when I was in the fourth grade. What did they do wrong? I mean, you have these people together and they decide to simply build a tower reaching to the heavens. Now, Now, here's what you might need to know about ancient Mesopotamia. Through excavation, they have discovered that there are somewhere around 300 towers that were built. And, and the largest ones maybe reach to about seven hunts, seven stories high. So, of course, if you're living in the ancient world, to you, in the way that you think, the way you conceive of the world, like that's that's building a tower to reach the heavens. And, and it's not just them. So, like one of my favorite bands um, is this couple called Johnny Swim. And they're a married couple. And I love that because so many of their songs are just about love in the married life. They're not like lusting songs or dating songs or falling in love songs. They're what it's like. This is what it's like to be in love. And they've got this one song about the birth of their son, Joaquin. And you know what they call it? Touching Heaven. Now... I've had newborns. There is nothing about middle-of-the-night feedings and changing dirty diapers. There's nothing about that that's touching heaven. They don't actually believe they're touching heaven. When America was in the middle of the Mercury and Gemini and Apollo space missions, and they said, "We we are going into the heavens, like no one believed that they were touching heaven, they were actually going to heaven. Like, like these are just things that we say, all of that excavation, seven-story buildings, that's not actually touching heaven. So what is this, what is this story about? And matters get even more confusing because just before this, In Genesis, you know what we're told? We're told that all of the people were already spread out all over the earth, that they already had languages. This is what it says in Genesis 10, starting in verse 2. It says, the descendants of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madal, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. I worked really hard on those names for you all. Now the descendants of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Tam- Tagama. I didn't work that hard on that one. The descendants of Javon were Elisa, Tarshish, Kittim, and Donamine. The descendants of Japheth became the peoples who settled the coastal and island regions. They developed their own languages, their own families, and cultures, and they would eventually become separate people. They were already spread out. Spread out on the coastland and they were different families with different languages and that's Genesis 10. But then in Genesis 11 they're all at Babel. So now I have two questions. What did they do wrong? And what is this story about? And the truth is, I don't know that I know what this story is about. But I do know there are some things that I could talk about around this story. One of the things that I could talk about is this word prolepsis. and and that's just that's just a fifty cent word for when things are told when a story is told out of order. And maybe that's what's happening in Genesis 10 and 11 that they just are told out of order. And the reality of our experience is that we're human beings and we do this all the time and we do it because it makes things more simple. like, you probably took, at some point, an American history class. And maybe in that American history class, a teacher told you, President Lincoln was born in Kentucky. Now, you know that he wasn't born president. He becomes president much, much later, but they just say President Lincoln because that helps you distinguish between that Lincoln and all the other Lincolns. Like, that helps you know who it is that we're talking about. And so we know it's not who he is when he's born, it's who he is later, it's what he becomes. And that's just a simple way of telling people a story out of order that we assume that they already know the big picture of. That's just prolepsis. And we do it all of the time. Like I worked with a lady about 10 years ago and she was a wonderful Christian lady. For the life of her, she could never tell a story the right way. She got most of the details right. She got the point right. But oftentimes things were out of order. Her numbers were off. Her perception was off. The exact people in the room weren't there. It happens all the time. But we tell a story. We're not necessarily looking to get all the facts and figures, all the data right. Sometimes we're just creating a point that we want people to walk away with. And maybe... Maybe that's what's happening here, that this is just a case of prolepsis. Maybe I could talk about that. But what worries me about that is that this is the Bible. And many people have a very particular agenda when it comes to the Bible. Because there are folks out there who really believe that, you know what's wrong, why people are skeptical of faith, why people are dismissive of the Christian faith? It's because they just don't have enough hard data. And so maybe if we can spend millions of dollars and find the exact location of Noah's Ark, that that might help them. Or there are other people who open up the scriptures and they're looking for a science textbook. And if we can get everything to add up just right to what we know now about the modern world, then people will believe. And so there's a concern, maybe even an anxiety amongst a lot of people, that we really have to get all of this down exactly right in order for the Bible to be believed because we don't accept the Bible on its own terms. And they want to get it right. And I want to get it right. I want to know what's important and what's not important. And that's what troubles me. And what also troubles me is that I live in 2022. And the reality of the last several years is just about every month we hear the story of a Christian leader who was very good at being a leader, but not very good at being a Christian And that gives rise to all of this skepticism and criticism about who Christians are. And so if we're going to have this Bible, we should at least get our story straight. And so if I were going to talk about this text, I might talk about prolepsis, but I might not. Well, I suppose I could also talk about imperialism. Because before me and before you, there were people who read this book, who read this story for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. They are the Hebrews who became the Jews. And they have a particular way of reading the stories that we read. And when they read Genesis 10 and 11 and they see these stories back to back, they think, oh, no, no, that's not a case of prolepsis. Like, that's exactly what happened. This story is really about imperialism, that the reality is that already there were people living in separate parts, in different parts of the known world at the time with their own families and their own lands and their own language. But there was one group in particular who decided that they should conquer all of the other groups. And what do we do? What do nation states do when we decide that we should conquer other people? Well, we make them just like us, or or at least we say they ought to be just like us. And that often begins with language that you're going to speak our language or because you already speak our language, then you naturally belong to us. Just a few months ago, Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. And a few years before that, it was the Crimea. And you remember what he said? He says, we're not interested in domination. We just want the Russian speaking parts. And a century before that, there was a man named Adolf Hitler who said, we're we're not out to conquer all of Europe. We just want the German-speaking parts. And then an imperial force comes in, and they mandate language, or they reclaim the places that they think are owed to them because of language. And what's the first thing they do? They build monuments. And so now this tower... This tower that's being built, it's not just a tower to reach into the heavens. It's a military monument. And you know why people build military monuments? It's to remind the people that they have been conquered. So when you travel and you see monuments built to soldiers and generals, battles, most of those aren't simply there to honor the fallen. They're reminders of the conquest over the oppressed to keep your place. But most of us most of us would say that we're not presidents, we're not czars, we're not premiers. We don't run nation states. We have very little leverage in those circumstances. But is that really true? Think about all the ways that we assume that the people in our family, the people in our schools, people at our work that live down the street man, the world would be a whole lot better if everyone else was just more like us. If they thought like I did, if they voted like I did, if they maneuvered in the world the same way that I do, then the world would be a whole lot better. The key for saving the world is for more people, To be like me. I could talk about that. But no one ever thinks that they're the ones doing that. So that can't, that can't possibly be what this story is about. Well, besides prolepsis and imperialism. Another thing that I think about when I read this story is maybe it's a story of about what it seems to be about, which is just selfish ambition. This idea that I'm going to rule, I'm going to conquer, I'm going to grow. And here's the funny thing about selfish ambition. In all of my years, I have never met anyone who thought that they were selfish. We're never selfish. We're just doing what we have to do. Like, like we're, we're doing what we have to do so that our partner will behave the way that we want them to behave, or our children will behave the way that we want them to behave. I'm just doing what I have to do to close the next deal. I'm saying what I have to say to get the promotion. I, I, I'm maneuvering in a world in a way that gets me the next thing, but it's not selfish. And plus I'm an American and isn't ambition so, something we should have anyway. No one's ever Selfish. We're just doing the next thing that we have to do. I mean, we're only ambitious insofar as we need to be to keep moving along. Even when we don't realize what all of that ambition is supposed to do or accomplish. You know, here at our church in Houston, we have what I think is probably an an oversampling of people in two professions, models and photographers, and some of them do both. And so one of the sweetest is a friend of mine. And just this past spring, she reached some important milestone to her in terms of her Instagram followers. And she was celebrating, and we were all very happy for her. And I remember having a conversation with her on Easter Sunday. And I said, well, explain to me, um, what does that mean? And she kind of looked and said, I'm not really sure I know. There's a part of us. And, And maybe we've been conditioned into it that wants to keep building and building and building and building just to see how far we can reach. And we don't even know why we're doing all the building. But it never feels like selfish ambition. It always feels like just doing the next thing. But here at Babel, they actually say to each other, Let's make a name for ourselves. In all of their building, in all of their ingenuity, no matter how high they build, God still has to come down to see it. But since no one ever considers themselves selfish and we don't think that ambition is wrong for any reason, then I wouldn't really talk about that. That's probably not what this story is about. So maybe what this story is about is evil. Yeah, I like evil. Church folks love to talk about evil. There's not a church in the country where I can't get an audience if I want to say to somebody, let's talk about evil. The problem is we love talking about evil unless we use a different word for evil, a word like sin. And then we get a little more touchy around the word sin because evil, evil has this exterior property about it. Like it's what someone else does and it's what other people do to other people. And sin kind of feels more personal and we would never participate in evil And plus, we're all twisted right now in terms of what's evil and what's not and how evil even works. So when I was in high school, I was a big news junkie because clearly that's what all the cool kids were into. And so one of my favorite pastimes because my mom always wanted to get up and go to the earliest service that our church had, which back then was really early, early. like our early service was like 7.30 in the morning. So I would come home and I would watch Meet the Press, because nothing says cool high school kid quite like watching Meet the Press. And so when I was about 15 or 16, Jerry Falwell, was a guest on Meet the Press. And he said something that I will always remember. He said that God is going to judge America for the sin of abortion. So it didn't matter if you had an abortion, if you contributed to someone else having an abortion. It didn't matter if you were an abortion supplier, if you were a doctor or a nurse or a hospital, that God was going to judge the entire country For the sin of abortion. Well, several years ago, there was a movie called 42. And it told the story of Jackie Robinson integrating Major League Baseball. And all of my white friends called me up and they said, you really need to go see 42 because apparently racism was new to them. And so I went to see 42 and when I saw it, I realized why they liked it. Because watching 42, all of the racism in 42 was an individual woman, an individual man being racist. I found that odd. Because I heard Jerry Falwell say, That somewhere along the line, all of us were going to be judged for something that he thought was a sin that some of us did. But when I watch this movie, it's just the people who do it who are to blame. Which is funny. Because Genesis talks about sin a lot. And in some ways, Genesis 11 doesn't begin in Genesis 11. It begins all the way back in Genesis 6, when God comes to Moses to Noah rather, and he says, "Noah, I'm going to judge the whole world because every man is just going their own way, doing their own thing. And so God does. God judges the world. Because individuals have done something. And now, in Genesis 11, God is judging the world because the collective has done something. God doesn't say in Genesis 11, let's go down there and smite the engineers and the managers. Let's go find the CEO." He says they're, they're all responsible. And see, one of the places where we get tripped up is that we have fallen, not just as a church, but as people in general, that something when something goes wrong, when there's evil in the world, it's either the fault of a bunch of individuals or it's a collective. And the Ark of Genesis seems to say that human beings are really good at both. (laughs) That there are some times where it is a systemic problem. And there are some times when it's an individual problem. And this is how I know that we're all twisted about this. This last year, the last spring, Our church has sent multiple teams about two and a half hours from where I live in Houston to a town called Uvalde after a mass shooting there. And you know what caused the mass shooting in Uvalde? An individual. Well, that's if you watch certain news and talk to certain people. Is this one guy's fault? If you watch other news and listen to other people, it's the system the system that we created. And maybe, just maybe, what Genesis is trying to tell us is that it's both. That we are really clever when it comes to sin and we will figure it out. And it's neither, either, or. It's always both. But that's about guns and racism. So I really wouldn't want to talk about that because that causes a lot of trouble and whatever people think, wherever we stand on those kinds of issues, we just assume that everybody else in the world ought to stand there too. So maybe what this story is about is the people of God. Because Genesis 11 falls at a really strange place. Like if you had read more of Genesis 10, which I read a part of before, you know what you get right after that? You just get a list of names, descendant after descendant, names that are hard to pronounce, names that you would name your children, names that you would think your friends were weird if they named their children that name. Just names, genealogies. And then you know what you get after you read the story of the Tower of Babel? More names. You get more descendants. More who begat who. In so many ways. This story is oddly placed. Like, why is it there? You get names, the Tower of Babel, more names. Until you get to Genesis 12. And that's where you get the story of a man named Abram. And Abram follows God. He is faithful. And God says, you know what, Abram, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bless you. And you are going to have a family. And that family is going to be like the sand on the seashore. And they will spread. And that family will become a tribe. And that tribe will become 12 tribes. And those 12 tribes will become a nation that I will bless. And from this nation will come a savior. And so maybe God has tried individuals and God has tried a collective. And in Genesis 12, he says, Let's try a covenant family. And from this family will come a savior. And that Savior will be who the Apostle Paul calls in Romans 8, the firstborn of a very large family. And maybe that family will be a redemptive community, a redemptive community that when it sees things in the world that are out of order, that they would set it right, what N.T. What Wright calls setting the world to rights. And, and that same family would resist imperialism and, and this temptation to put everyone in a sausage press and smooth out, take away all of their distinctiveness, take away all of their identity. And say that you don't have to be just like me to be fully loved and accepted by God. That I'm not going to force or impose who I am and how God created me on you for you to be a part of who God is creating this community to be. And maybe that very same family would set aside their personal rights for the sake of others to love and to serve the world for the sake of community. And community is really different from being in a collective. And maybe that same family would resist evil in all of its forms, whether it is in the self or whether it's in society not only to resist it, but to bring light and hope and healing. Maybe that's what's going on in this story. And if only there was a community in the world who was dedicated to being that kind of community. At that point, I might know what this story is about. South Bend City, God be with you now and forever.
0: Y'all give it up for Sean. <laughs> i like for y'all to stand as you're able. I'm going to take you back a little bit. Now I want you to repeat after me, okay? May the Lord watch between me and thee while we are absent absent. one from another another. grace and peace be with you all i love you y'all have a great week